Welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 13, A Few Figures. A moment later, we were sitting on a divan in the saloon smoking cigars. The captain spread out before me a drawing that gave the plan, section, and elevation of the Nautilus. Then he began to elaborate. Here, Monsieur Aranax, you have the various dimensions of the boat you are in. Its shape is that of an elongated cylinder with conodal ends. It looks very much like a cigar, a design already adopted in London for construction of the same nature. The length of the cylinder from end to end is exactly 70 meters, or 228.9 feet and the maximum breadth of the beam is 8 meters, or 26.16 feet. So you see, it isn't quite built in the ratio of 10 to 1, like your fast steamers, but its lines are sufficiently long and its curve sufficiently gradual for it to cut the water smoothly and easily. These two measurements will enable you, by means of a simple calculation, to work out the surface area and the volume of the Nautilus. Its area is 1,011.45 square meters, its volume 1,500.2 cubic meters, which means that when entirely submerged, it displaces 1,500 cubic meters or 1,500 metric tons. When I drew up the plans of this ship destined for underwater navigation, I intended that when floating on the surface, she should be nine-tenths submerged, that is, that only one-tenth should be above the watermark. Therefore, under these conditions, she would not displace nine-tenths of her volume, or 1,356.48 cubic meters, and would only weigh the same number of tons. So, in building her in accordance with the above dimensions, I could not exceed this weight. The Nautilus has two holes, one inside the other, joined by T-shaped irons, which gives the ship enormous strength. Indeed, because of the cellular arrangement, it resists like a block, as though it were solid. Its sides cannot give. They hold by virtue of their own structure, and not because they are kept in place by rivets. This homogeneous construction and the perfect combination of the materials used enable the ship to defy the roughest seas. The two hulls are made of steel plates, whose density is 7.8 times that of water. The first hull, which is not less than 2 inches thick, weighs 394.96 metric tons. The second hull, including the keel, which is 20 inches high and by itself weighs 62 metric tons. The machinery, the ballast, the various accessories and instruments, bulkheads, braces, and so on add up to another 961.62 tons. This added to the 394.96 makes 1,356.58 metric tons, or just about the weight desired. You agree? Yes. So, the captain continued, when the Nautilus is on the surface under these conditions, a tenth of her is above the water. I have therefore built tanks of capacity equal to that tenth. That is, able to hold 150.72 tons, and if I fill them with water, the boat, which then displaces 1,507 tons, will be completely submerged, which is just what happens, Professor. These tanks are situated in the lowest part of the Nautilus. I open the valves, they fill up, and the boat sinks until it is just above the surface. That is clear, Captain, but now we see we come to a serious problem. I understand perfectly well how you can submerge just below the surface, but in diving deeper, does your submarine not encounter a pressure, and therefore an upward thrust, at the rate of one atmosphere per 32 feet of water, or just about 15 pounds per square inch? Quite right, Monsieur. So, unless you fill the Nautilus completely, I do not see how you can force her down into deep water. Monsieur le Professeur, 
replied Captain Nemo. Let us not confuse statics with dynamics, or we will make some very serious errors. Very little effort is involved in reaching the lower levels of the ocean, for all bodies, as you know, tend to sink. Let us go on with our reasoning. I am with you, Captain. When I wanted to submerge the increase in weight necessary to submerge the Nautilus, I only had to determine the reduction in volume that seawater undergoes as we move down deeper and deeper. That is quite evident, I replied. Now, if water is not absolutely incompressible, it is nevertheless slightly compressible. According to recent calculations, this reduction is only 0.0000436 per atmosphere, or for each 32 feet of depth. If we have to dive 3,200 feet, that is, under a pressure of 100 atmospheres, this reduction would be then 0.00436. I should then have to increase the weight from 1,507.2 to 1,513.77 tons. The increase, consequently, would be only 6.57 tons. Is that all? Yes, Monsieur Aranax, that is all. The calculation is easy to verify. Now I have auxiliary tanks that can hold 100 tons, so you see, I can do go down to a considerable depth. When I want to rise to the surface, all I have to do is empty all my tanks, and the Nautilus will emerge above the waterline by one-tenth of its total capacity. This reasoning was sound, based as it was on figures. I accept your calculations, Captain, I replied. I couldn't dispute them, since your daily experience proves them to be correct, but I still see one real difficulty. What is that, monsieur? When you are about 3,200 feet down, the hull of the Nautilus has to bear a pressure of 100 atmospheres. If, therefore, at that moment, you wish to empty the auxiliary tanks in order to lighten your craft and rise to the surface, the pumps have to overcome that pressure of 100 atmospheres, which is equivalent to about 1,500 pounds per square inch. That would necessitate a power that only electricity gives me interjected Captain Nemo. I repeat, monsieur, that the dynamic power of my engines is most almost infinite. The pumps of the Nautilus have prodigious forces, as you must have noticed when your jets of water burst like a torrent over the Abraham Lincoln. Besides, I use the reserve tanks only for reaching average depths of 750 to 1,000 fathoms, with a view to saving my engines. When I want to visit the depths of the ocean two or three leagues down, I use slower but less infallible means. What means do you use? I asked. We now come to the problem of how the Nautilus is steered. I am very impatient to know. In order to steer this ship to port or to starboard, to turn, that is, on a horizontal plane, I use an, an ordinary rudder with a large rake fixed to the back of the stern post, activated by a wheel and tackle. But I can also move the Nautilus upward and downward, along a vertical plane, by means of two sloping fins attached to the sides opposite the center of flotation. These fins can be shifted into any position from inside the ship by means of powerful levers. If they are kept parallel to the boat, the latter moves horizontally. If they are inclined to the Nautilus, depending on the angle and the thrust of its propeller, either dives following a diagonal line of my choice or else rises following that diagonal. If I want to return to the surface more rapidly, I disengage the propeller and the pressure of the water causes the Nautilus to rise vertically as fast as a balloon filled with hydrogen rises in the air. Excellent, Captain, excellent, I cried. But how can the steersman follow the course you have set underwater? The steersman occupies a, a cage with glass windows that protrudes above the upper part of the hull. The panes are made of biconvex glass. Do you mean you have glass that can resist pressure? Certainly. This glass can be shattered by a sharp blow, but it can resist considerable pressure. 
During experiments carried out in 1864 in fishing by electric light in the northern seas, we saw plates of this material less than a third of an inch thick stand up to pressure of 16 atmospheres, the same time letting through heat rays which split up unevenly on its surface. Now the glass that I use is never less than 9 inches thick at the center, that is to say about 30 times that thickness. I can understand that, Captain Nemo, but in order to see properly, light must dispel darkness. This makes me wonder how in dark waters, behind the steersman's cage, there's a powerful electric reflector whose ray can light up the sea for half a mile. Magnificent, Captain, magnificent. I understand now the cause of that phosphorescent attributed to a narwhal which so intrigued the scientists. By the way, would you be kind enough to tell me whether the collision of the Nautilus with the Scotia which caused such a stir was the result of an accident? Just an accident, monsieur. I was sailing no more than one fathom below the surface when the collision occurred. I saw that no d serious damage had been done. None whatever. But what about your collision with the Abraham Lincoln? I am very sorry, Professor, that such a thing should have happened to one of the best ships in the American Navy. But I was being attacked, and I had to defend myself. However, I was happy just to put the frigate out of action, so as not to cause me any trouble. She will have no problem getting repairs at the nearest port. Ah, Captain... I exclaimed with enthusiasm, what a truly marvelous ship your Nautilus is. Yes, Professor, replied the captain with feeling. I love her as though she were a part of me. On board ordinary ships, when they are faced with perils of the ocean, men's first impression is that a bottomless abyss has opened underneath them, to quote the apt words of the Dutchman Jansen. On the other hand, on board the Nautilus, a man's heart never fails him. The double hull of this boat is as strong as iron. There are no defects to fear, no rigging to be overstrained by pitching and tossing, no sails to be carried away by the wind, no boilers to burst, no danger of fire, since this craft is made of iron plates and not of wood, no running out of coal since she is powered by electricity, no collision to worry about since this ship is the only one navigating the deep waters, no storm to brave since we are a few meters down where the waters are perfectly calm. There, monsieur, there, you have a ship par excellence. And if it is true that the engineer has more confidence in a ship than the builder, and the builder more confidence in the ship than the captain himself, understand why I have complete confidence in the Nautilus, since I am the captain, her builder, and her engineer. Captain Nemo was quite carried away by his eloquence. His blazing eyes and impassioned gestures made him appear like a different man. Yes, indeed, he loved his ship as a father loves his child. However, there was just one question, indiscreet perhaps, that I couldn't resist asking. You are, then, an engineer by profession, Captain Nemo? Yes, Monsieur le Professeur. I studied in London, Paris, and New York, when I still lived on land. But how were you able to build the marvelous Nautilus in secret? Each of its components, Monsieur Aranax, was sent to me from a different part of the world under various names. The keel was forged by Crusoe in France, the propeller shaft at Pin and Company, London the iron plates for the hull at Laird's, in Liverpool, the propeller at Scotts in Glasgow, the reservoirs were made at Kale and Company in Paris, the engines of Krupp in Prussia, and the spur at the workshop of Motalia in Sweden. The precision instruments were made by Hart Brothers of New York, and so on. Each of these suppliers received my orders under a different name. But, I rejoined, you had to assemble and adjust these various components. I set up my workshop on a small, deserted island in mid-ocean, Professor, there, my workmen, that is, my worthy companions, whom I had instructed and trained, and I built our Nautilus. Then, when the work was completed, we destroyed by fire all traces of our activity. If I had been able, I would have blown up the island also. 
I presume the cost must have been a prohibitive. Monsieur Aranax, an iron vessel costs about 1,125 francs per ton. Nautilus displaces 1,500 tons. This amounts to 1,697,000 francs. That is 2 million francs if we include the furnishings or 4 to 5,000 if we include the works of art in the collections. One last question, Captain Nemo. Why not, Monsieur le Professeur? He must be very rich. Very, very rich, Monsieur. Fabulously rich. I could pay off the national debt of France, 12 billion francs, without any financial embarrassment. I stared in astonishment at this strange, unusual man as he spoke. Was he taking advantage of my credulity? Time would tell. Questions to consider after reading. How do the submarines that we have now, and when Verne was living, and the Nautilus compare to each other? Do you get lost in the figures and measurements of the Nautilus? Nemo attacked the Abraham Lincoln because they were attacking him. Was this justified? How did Nemo hide the building of the Nautilus from the world? Do you think that method could or would be implemented in current times? We know much more about Captain Nemo than we did a few chapters ago. What type of character does he have? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.